Thank you, David. It was a uh, joy to be able to fold the boxes and uh, Karis Dabney, wherever she is listening, watching online or in the back, next year I am coming for you as the fastest box folder that is at our church. So uh, uh, if you want to know what all that's about next year, join us as we do that. Um, this morning, as we look at the text, one of the things that we see from this text is that this text really, what it's doing is that it's telling us something about God, about who He is, and about what He is like. And as you know, if you have studied or tried to learn about God and who He is, in many ways God is uncomprehensible. He is so far beyond us. You know, we in our society think we can define God, but if God had not given us His Word, if God had not chosen to reveal Himself to us, we would not know what He is like. And this morning, as we look at this text, we see some things about God and about how He has chosen to reveal Himself. And what we know, what we hear about who God is, should affect us and it should change the way in which we live. If we truly know who God is, if we truly are in a relationship with Him and we learn something about Him, it should change us. The context of these verses, if you've been with us, we've been in the book of Second Peter. And the context, if you were with us last week, that you know that we were talking about, Peter is talking about false teachers. And in verse 1, he says that false teachers have always been among God's people and false teachers always will be among God's people. And we saw not only that, but we saw one of the points of last week that the thing that follows false teachers and the, things that, the thing that follows those who are following false teachers is destruction. In verse 1 last week, we saw, if you look in chapter 2, verse 1, at the end it says, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And then if you were go down to verse 3, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. One of the problems that I think, I'm assuming, I think that Peter's, the, the people to whom Peter was writing were seeing, is that they may hear these words, or they may know that God is a God of judgment, that God doesn't tolerate sin, but they may be looking at the church, looking at the false teachers, looking at everything that is going on around them, and they may be saying to themselves, is, is God even there? Does He even care? Look at what's going on. You see, the problem, and we've been hinting at this over the past couple of weeks, is not only is there a false teaching, but there is a false ethic that has been going along with this false teaching. I want you to notice something, and it's all throughout this book, but I just want to point out four verses to you. Look back again in chapter 2 at verse 2. It says, many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. Notice it's saying many will follow their sensuality. The kind of sin, the kind of lifestyle that is leading from this false teaching is sexual in nature. It's saying they'll follow their sensuality. Look at verse 10 with me. And especially, of this same chapter, and especially those who indulge the flesh. 
Again, this is talking about a a sexual sin in nature. They are indulging the flesh. And then if we were to jump ahead in verse 13 and in verse 14, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. Notice this. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. The language here is pointing to a a sin of sexual nature. And then again in verse 14, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. And so what you have having, imagine this, is that you have, you know, the Christians to whom Peter was writing were minorities in their culture. Being a Christian, uh, you were a minority in culture back then. It's different than America, of everybody proclaiming to be Christians. And so what was going around you were, were things like pagan worship, idol worship, all sorts of evil, all sorts of revelries. And then, so imagine being a Christian in this context, and then imagine that you go to church and these things are happening within the church. What we would do if we walked in here and this sort of thing was being proclaimed and taught and this was going on is we would go to another church. It wasn't that easy in this day and age. This might have been the only church. This letter may have been received by people. And this was the only option that they had. And so Peter was writing and telling them, look, this is going on in and among you. Stay strong. So what Peter is trying to do is encourage the people who are receiving this letter to stand strong. To not follow the false teachers. To not follow after the sexual sin that is going on in the church. And he's telling them it may look like these folks are getting away with it, but they're not. Notice the connection from verse 3 into our uh, scripture this morning. At the end of verse 3, their judgment from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep for. And then it breaks into uh, this our message this morning. So it's a continuous thought of talking about the things that connect that, that, that section to this section is the judgment is sure. And we're going to see that this morning and how that's linked to the character of God. But we're also going to see a glorious, hope-filled, maybe unexpected message this morning as Peter is talking about the character of God. And that it should build the hope and courage It should have, and I think it did, serve its purpose in the hearers of this word. And I hope that it builds hope and courage in you. Now, you need to know a little bit about the structure. There's a grammatical construction here. uh, And this was common to be used. And and you just need to have it in your mind. It's very easy. If you notice in verse 4, it says, for if. Uh, And then in verse 6, if, and in verse 7, if, what you have is that Peter lays out three examples from the Old Testament and says, if God did this, if God did this, if God did this, and then notice in verse 9, then the Lord knows how to do this. And what I want you to fix in your mind is this, if God did this, if God did this, if God did this, the, the the reader Uh, back in this day, who read this, would have known, if this, then how much more this? 
And so when we get to verse 9 today, it's not simply, then the Lord this. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's really highlighting how much more, if God did this, how much more will He um, do what He tells us that He will do in verse 9. Now, I, I want to pause and say that we all know something about this kind of message and this kind of structure. Some of you may have grown up in homes with, with harsh fathers. And you would say something to me like this, you know, if I spilled water at the dinner table and my father got angry with me, how much more would he be angry with me if I spilled Kool-Aid on the carpet? I grew up in a home with a wonderful father. Um, One of the rules in my house was that we did not um, lay hands on each other as children. Uh, I had a younger brother who uh, tempted me regularly to lay hands on him. And uh, what I knew is that, and, and I got this lesson from a very early age, um, if I got in trouble uh, for being on top of my brother and holding his legs and arms down, uh, as I often did, um, how much more trouble would I be in if my dad came in and I'm socking him in the face? Uh, and there were times that, uh, well, no, that never happened, kids. Another way to think about this is that think about like uh, maybe at work and you have a boss and you say, hey, if my boss is upset because I've missed the deadline by a day, how much more will my boss be upset if I miss the deadline by two days, three days, four days, or I don't do it at all? You see, the key here is that in all these situations, the assumption is, is there is an authority And that there are standards. And that's what we're getting in this text. That God is our authority and He has standards. Now, take into these situations at work. Let's say that you don't do what you're supposed to do. You don't turn in your report on time and nothing happens. Or or imagine, let's say maybe you are turning in your report on time. And you look and your co-workers don't do their work. And nothing is happening to them. What is the temptation? What Peter is drawing attention to this morning is this idea that there is an authority, that God is our authority, and that the sin that was taking place within the church is a sin against God. And that although that the punishment may not have happened instantaneous when the sin occurred, that that sin will not go unpunished. Judgment it will happen. And in some sense, if we looked at Romans 1, that is already happening in them being handed over to this sin. And what Peter is doing this morning is he is appealing. He's appealing to who God is and he's looking at history. He's going back to the Old Testament. And what he's telling us is that God has not changed. The character of God has not changed. He was the same then and he is the same now, now, as we read, so what Peter is getting ready to do, he's giving us three examples from the Old Testament and saying, if God did this then, then now, here's how he is. And we are meant, we are meant to look at this. Peter was careful in using these examples, and he even says, note these things as examples to you. So as we read them and we see the details, the details are here on purpose. Peter is wanting to relate to his audience. 
So let's look at the first example that Peter gives us. He says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. And so what we see, uh, and we think this is uh, drawing to Genesis chapter 6, where the angels uh, saw uh, women and came down and took the form of man and had inappropriate relationships with them. And our text in the Bible doesn't give us a lot of history about this, but what we know from Jewish tradition is that what would have been a common story, what would have been a, a common thing that they would have heard, they would have understood that when Peter writes this, there, that there was an idea, there was a thought that these angels were cast down into hell, and, and hell being a, a place of waiting and underworld, and they were reserved for judgment. In other words, God hasn't forgotten these angels or their sin. And God will punish them. They are being reserved for punishment. They're not getting away with it. The other thing that I think the message loud and clear to the readers in Peter's day would have been this. If God is willing to punish angels, what about man? That this would have rang true and loud in their ears. Not only is he able to punish angels, but his character demands that sin is punished. Let's look at his second example, and I want you to be listening here for the difference. <clears throat> so we have if the angels sin and that in God punished them and as God is going to ultimately and finally punish them in the last judgment, then look at example number two in verse five. And did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And you remember, if you've been in church for any length of time, if you've gone to any Sunday school class as a child or looked on any wall on the Sunday school class, you know the story of Noah's Ark. I want to go back there just for one brief moment. Because I want to remind us of something in Genesis chapter six. I want you to notice what the Lord thought of the generation in which Noah lived. It says the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord noticed this. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals, to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then in verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked on the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. And then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. The earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. We see why Peter may have used this example because God was getting ready to destroy. And Peter, the word he uses when he talks about these false teachers and those that follow after them is destroy Destroy, destroy. The thing that I want you to notice is that when God sees wickedness and sin, He does not treat it lightly. 
Can we let that land on us a little bit? That when God sees wickedness and sin and ungodliness in the world, He doesn't take that lightly. In fact, who He is, and we'll talk a little bit more about this in a minute, one of the things we're discovering is that because God is holy, that God must punish sin. So we see here that He looks and sees a people who rebelled against Him, and they're not following His ways. But I want you to notice something here. Did you see what was interesting in the midst of this? That God, is, as Peter is writing on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that He's talking about judgment and destruction. And did you notice what He said about Noah? And, and He led with this. He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others. Very interesting here, what Peter is doing as he's talking about this judgment and this destruction is that he's bringing out this other characteristic of God. He said he preserves Noah and seven others. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if you were alive during the day of that Peter was writing and you were in this church and every the culture around you and it seemed like the church around you was folding in and there were no people following the way, and it seemed like the numbers were dwindling because of various things. Can you imagine the hope that may fill you when you read these words that although that God was bringing judgment upon the world, that God saw Noah and he was willing to preserve Noah and seven others? I think this is here so that Peter is bringing hope, bringing hope to the world. Notice not only that, But notice what he calls Noah. He calls Noah a preacher of righteousness, which is fascinating because we don't necessarily see in the Genesis account Noah standing on a half-built ark preaching. What I imagine was going on, and I think this to be the case, that as Noah was building the ark and the world around him was coming and saying, what on the world are you doing? That he was pleading with them about the judgment of God to come, and he was pleading with them to turn and to not to continue in their ways. And that, that God was going to rescue some. And I, I, just, I think when it says he was a preacher of righteousness, this is what I think was going on. And so it should perk our ears up as we're reading now and we're seeing these three examples Not only is God talking about judgment, but Peter is bringing in something else. Let me make one more word about being a preacher of righteousness here. I want to make this claim here and I'll make it again later. But when you are living in a world and you see sin, you see unrighteousness, and you know that God is a God that punishes sin and punishes unrighteousness, it is a very unloving thing to do to keep your mouth shut. Do we understand that? That Noah would have been very unloving to just mind his own business, to live and let live, would have been a very unloving thing for Noah to do. And we'll talk in a little bit about it, it would be a very unloving thing for us to do if we had a message, a way out, a salvation, as it were. The third example, 
third example, another interesting example that Peter brings up in verse 6. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Now, he brings up as his third example, Sodom and Gomorrah. And if we were to go to Genesis chapter 19, we would see that, again, God looks and he sees the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he sees what's going on in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And it is detestable to him. And he is going to wipe out the whole city. You remember this. And then it's like, well, are there a hundred? Are there this many righteous people? And God preserves Lot out of this. And it's so bad, Sodom and Gomorrah, that it, it, it had the reputation of being known for its sin. In other words, a modern day maybe example of this is that if I were to say Las Vegas, what comes to mind? Not godliness and biblical literacy, Right? That's not the first thing that comes to mind. Are there godly people there? Yes. Are there good churches? Yes. But you understand what I'm saying. Notice what happens. And, and Peter wants the emphasis, us to get this emphasis, is that at one point it was known for this. And then as God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah and reduced it to ashes, it was known forever as a place of judgment. In fact, Isaiah, when he references Sodom and Gomorrah in Isaiah 1.9, it is, he's referencing that as a, it's known because it was leveled to ashes. It's known as a place of judgment. In Romans chapter 9, verse 29, Paul quotes Isaiah in the same way. That, so now when Sodom and Gomorrah gets brought up, what gets brought to your mind, the thing that comes to your mind, would be punishment, would be Judgment. Again, we see Peter driving home at this theme of judgment, God's judgment. But notice again, unlike the first example, it says that he rescued righteous Lot. Now, th th this one's a little bit harder. If you know your Bible... I don't think if you were listing righteous people, Lot wouldn't be probably in your top ten. Lot did some really bad things, made some very poor choices. The very fact that he was still in Sodom and Gomorrah is horrible. Lot made these decisions to take his family back there and to plant them there. And we see later on uh, the sins of his daughters and that I, I think it's probably because of how they grew up and the culture that they grew up in. But notice, I think, I think what Peter is, is pointing us to is notice again in verse 7, he rescued righteous Lot, and it says that he was oppressed, or that he was, another way of saying this, he was worn out by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. That is, is that he saw the, the sexual sin that was going on in and around the city, and that he was worn out by that. He saw it as against God and against God's authority. And, and again in verse 8, he tells us, For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, he felt his righteous soul tormented 
day after day by their lawless deeds. That as he was there, the whole city around him, the sin and the lawlessness affected him, but Lot stood firm. And God says, this righteous Lot. And God saved Lot. Now, if God did all of this, if God, if God set aside the angels for destruction, if God destroyed the earth because of the sin in the days of Noah, if God destroyed the city of um, Sodom and Gomorrah, then how much more, and we expect it to say, how much more will God keep the unrighteousness, unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment? And it says that, and that is a point. But notice what Peter says first. Then how much more the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. He's telling them, Peter is telling them, don't give up. Don't give in. God is going to rescue you from this temptation. Don't despise authority. Look at verse 10 when he's talking about judgment and especially those who indulge in the flesh and its corrupt desires and despise authority. Don't despise authority. Keep yourself under the authority of God. Walk in his ways. God knows how to rescue the godly. So what does this tell us about God? As I said earlier, one of the reasons that Peter is pointing to the Old Testament is he is telling us that God has always been this way. He is pointing us to, I'm getting ready to tell you about the characteristics of God. And the first thing that we see is that God always has been, He is, and He always will be holy. It is who He is. He is perfect. It's not that God does holy things. He is holy. And what flows out of His holiness is righteousness and goodness. And it's not that He does those things. It's His very essence. He can do no other. That's why He is so far removed from us. That's why we use the word holy, which means separate. That God, not only is He the standard, but it, it, it flows out of Him. It emanates through Him. We have nothing to really which to compare this to. And part of His holiness means that He is just and He is right to punish sin. He is right to bring in justice. It's part of who He is. And if that, if that was all, and we just left it there, um, I don't know how we would leave this morning. But Peter doesn't leave us there, does he? The other thing that Peter is telling us is not only is God holy, and part of His holiness is also God is love. God is love. And another way to say this, I think uh, the way that we see this shown in this text is that He is faithful. I love the fact that Noah and Lot are imperfect people and that are flawed people. Because what God is demonstrating through His Spirit, speaking through Peter, 
what he's demonstrating is this, is that God was faithful to Noah and Lot in all of their flaws. Why? Because they recognized that God would make a way. That God is a God of love. He's a God of mercy. And God is a God who saves. And the very essence of the gospel is here. Right? That we, you and I, are hopeless and helpless in our sin. And that God is right and He is just to punish us for our sin. But God did not leave us there. He sent His Son. He bent down to us and made a way that if we put our hope and faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then we will be one of His people. We are adopted into His family. We are and we will be rescued from the day of judgment. And this is supposed to encourage Peter's readers and encourage us as we look around this world. One of the things that one commentator said, two two things that he said that stuck out to me. One is that the church, Christians in our day and age, care too little about the holy standards of God. That unfortunately, when you look at surveys done inside and outside the church, that there's not a whole lot of difference a lot of times in some of the sin that takes place inside and outside the church, whether it comes from pornography use or adultery or sleeping with someone outside of marriage. And I'm just emphasizing the sexual sin that Peter was emphasizing as well. That there's, there's, there's not much difference there. In fact, one of the heresies that I think is, is rampant in our day and age is a, a heresy that only focuses on part of God's character. That He is love. And that is true. God is love. But think about if we, if we cut out from God, if we cut off the characteristic that God is just and that God has standards and that God is holy. One of the things that happens is that this position of just standing over here, one is this, is that we continue in our sin and we are in the same place as these people to whom Peter was writing. And the other thing that happens is this, is that we will not know the depths of God's love until we know the depths of His holiness. Because when we understand His holiness and His, His, His righteousness and His standards, and that we fall short of that, then when we see that God comes and He saves us, it overwhelms us because we're undeserving. So this is huge, that people in our culture care way too little about the holy standards of God. The other problem that you heard in this text, and I think applies as well to us in our day and age, is that we often care too little about the world around us. That we take on the attitude of live and let live. That we get lulled asleep by the idea that God's judgment is on this world and is currently active on this world. How dare us if we have a friend or a neighbor who is involved with something, let's say that they're a Christian here, who is involved with something that uh, is not according to what God would want them to do, 
And we think the loving thing to do is to be silent. How dare us? Or, or, if we know that the world around us, like in these examples, was headed for destruction and headed for doom, and we knew, we knew how to get on the boat. How unloving is it to stay silent? Why do we stay silent? We don't want the world to look down upon us. Peter here is reminding his readers of who God is and what he was like. These two wonderful truths of God is holy, he is just, God is also love, he is full of mercy, he is faithful. And what he wants us to know as we are going through this world, again in verse 9, and, and I want to head towards a closing by emphasizing this, is that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. If you keep yourself under his authority, if you look to him, as who he is. And as you, if you strive to walk in the way that he wants you to walk. God will keep you from these temptations. Not meaning that there won't be things that tempt you. Or you won't hear things or see things. But God will strengthen you. God will sustain you so that you can walk in holiness. but I fear that many of us are too comfortable with the world around us. And I'm praying this morning, have been praying as I've been working on this message over this past week, I would be a fool to believe that there aren't some maybe in here, in the pavilion, or who are viewing online, who aren't struggling with some of the sins mentioned. We can never be a church and will never be a church that tolerates overt sin that's out in the public. And this is, again, it's talking about sexual sin. And one of the things that, you know, we, we strive to do that here out of love, out of restoration. But one of the things that this just brings to mind over and over in my head is that, you know, many of you may be struggling with the silent sin that's done behind closed doors with a computer screen of pornography. What I want you to know is that God has standards and this is not what God has for your life. And that sin is destructive and will bring destruction in your life and in the lives of those around you. But brother or sister, know this, that God is a God who wants to rescue you out of that. And in in this day and age, in order to do that, you've got to come out of the darkness. You've got to come out of the... You've got to come out into... To, to talk with us about that and let us pray with you. Let us help you get some accountability in your life. This is great news that God doesn't leave us in that, that he's a God of love and mercy and forgiveness. And lastly, lastly, we have a message, don't we? Doesn't it just thrill your heart? Doesn't it thrill your heart that the God of the universe is love, is merciful, is faithful. And that 
this message. We need to say this to one another as we're going through this world. We need to remind one another that God is faithful, that He is with us, that He, will, he is strengthening us, that He will help us walk. But we also need to be willing to give to the world around us this message that God can rescue you out of your judgment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, God, I pray that as we look at your character, as we look at Peter, as he draws us to the fact that you are a God who judges sin, who punishes sin. God, and that you are a God that rescues the righteous. And when you say, when we say righteous here, we're not earning our way to our salvation, but in your mercy, you bend and have a relationship with us and you strengthen us and you help us to walk. God, I pray that we would be a people that are tormented and oppressed by the sin around us. And that that will lead us not to hating those around us or yelling and screaming in judgment at those around us, but it will lead us to love those around us so much that we constantly and lovingly and fervently Declare that there is a way out. You have made a way. For Lot, it was a walk to another city without turning back. For Noah, it was getting on a boat. You've sent your son. For us, we put our faith and trust in him. And he walks with us on this journey. And God, we're so thankful and overwhelmed by that. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. You'll stand with me. We're going to end by singing the doxology.